This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, and welcome to a new kind of podcast from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. This is a new format for us, where we source the most in-demand questions from Google, our listeners and readers, and a few from the team itself. And we put those questions to an expert to help you get to grips with the most important ideas and discoveries in science. To kick things off, we're starting with Professor Jim Alkalili. Jim presents the brilliant show The Life Scientific over on BBC Radio 4 which if you haven't listened to yet, you should definitely check out on BBC Sounds now. Jim is a veteran science presenter and author, who amongst many other accolades, won the inaugural Stephen Hawking Medal for his work in science communication. He also teaches physics at the University of Surrey, and somehow finds time together with his team to still publish research in the fields of nuclear physics and quantum biology. And if that's not enough work for one man to do, Jim has just published a fantastic book called The World According to Physics. So, in today's episode, we're going to take a bird's eye view of the subject and delve a little into the building blocks, the particles that make the universe as we know it. So, Jim, why did you decide to write this book? Well, um, it's an interesting format because the book is actually smaller than your, your typical popular science book covering sort of the, all the areas of physics. There have been a number of really good popular science books have come out in the last few years. They tend to be like, like you know, a thousand page long tome dis- discussing the whole history of physics going all the way back to Aristotle and, and so on. I wanted to write something that was compact, almost, I mean, the book has that pocket size feel to it. So it's, it's, it's small, it's neat, but I also didn't want to write the full history of physics. What I wanted to do was, I guess, two things. One is, to give people the state of 
the union type thing. You know, where are we at in our understanding of the laws of nature? What we know, uh, uh, what we don't know. So I say if, 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 if physics knowledge is, is like an island and, and around it are the great oceans of the, of the unknown, um, this book isn't an exploration of the island. It's a stroll around the shoreline. Right, so the, the the very limits of what we know in in fundamental physics, particle physics, all the way through to cosmology, and what the mysteries uh, are that are still out there that we you know. So wade out into the water a bit and, and figure out you know what do we still need to understand. The other reason for writing the book is that it's my own sort of love affair with the subject that I've spent most of my my life thinking about. So I'm I'm trying to get across my own personal sort of this is my ode to physics in the book, as it were. Yeah, it, it definitely came across that way to me and um, helped help me to remember what I first loved about the subject. Okay, so let's get started. First up, what's the most unbelievable thing about the study of physics that you can share with us? Uh, well, I think in, in broadly, for me, I, 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 it's still the fact that I can scribble Greek symbols on a piece of paper uh, solve abstract equations and end up with, say, a number that describes some property of the world. And then if I check that against, you know, if I do an experiment or by observing uh, uh, nature, I see that, that that number agrees with reality. So it's, it's this fact that the laws of nature are written in a language that we've cracked, and that language is maths. The fact that these abstract symbols on a piece of paper actually describe how the world works will i will never cease to be amazed by that so over the course of the next couple hours you're going to teach me a lot of physics uh, but before we do that tell me why should a person want to know more about physics you know I'm, I'm sort of constantly amazed that not everyone is in love as in love with physics as i am but hey you know each to their own but but, but i think it, it the reason why I think we should know more physics, it, it will, it'll be different reasons for different people. Um, for some, it's just because they enjoy having their minds blown. You know, sort of, wow, that's, that's incredible, amazing that time behaves in this way or and so on. The universe is expanding. Um, you know, when they learn something, some, some fact about how the world works. Uh, for others, I think it, it's, it allows us to appreciate the beauty of the laws of nature, you know, the, just the aesthetic beauty, uh, studying the world, understanding the world, the fact that we can understand the world is, is, is similar to an appreciation of a work of art or, or a, a piece of music. And it shouldn't just be the preserve of those who spent years and years studying physics. You know, what I've tried to do throughout most of my career is to try and bring, bring that beauty, that enjoyment, that sense of wonder to, to a wide audience. And then on top of that, of course, uh, understanding physics benefits humanity. <laughs> you know, th uh, this, of course, applies to all of science, not just physics. But uh, for physics, I'll, I'll just give one example. You know, th those pioneer physicists who, back in the 1920s, were unlocking the, the, the mysteries of the atomic world, the, the, the rules of quantum mechanics, the theory of the very small, they weren't just crazy geniuses talking, you know, in some obscure technical language. Because they developed a theory, quantum mechanics, without which we wouldn't be doing this podcast. You know, most of the modern world relies on our understanding of quantum physics. Because without quantum physics, we wouldn't understand 
we wouldn't have invented semiconductors. We wouldn't have had uh, modern electronics. We wouldn't have had computers, microchips, mobile phones, or anything. So an understanding of physics really has allowed us to develop the modern world. Without physics, we'd have no engineering. And without engineering, we'd have no civilization. So there you go. Well, well, there you go. Um, I think that's a pretty good reason to keep listening. So let's start with a question that caught my eye from Google. And it's something that you talk about in your book. Can physics be beautiful? Yes. And uh, and I'd like to think it's not just a beauty that can be appreciated by by professional physicists. Uh, you know, I think it's something that everyone can can appreciate. For me personally, I think it was one of one of the key moments in 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 when I was a student studying physics that really sent literally sent a shiver down my spine. I remember it was in my second year undergraduate um, uh, lecture on electromagnetism. Now that may not sound really sexy, <laughs> but I remember the the the, the lecturer starting with a, a, a set of algebraic equations called Maxwell's field equations, uh, describing electric fields and magnetic fields, just, just writing down these algebraic equations, and then working through this derivation on the blackboard and arriving at a new equation in which there's a constant number there, the, 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 uh, the symbol C, which turns out to be the speed of light. And you see, that's how James Clerk Maxwell, the great Scottish physicist, realised that light is just electric and magnetic waves travelling through empty space. Now, I knew that, but to look at the algebra and start from electric fields and magnetic fields and arrive at the speed of light, oh, my goodness. I mean, I remember t- turning to, to, to my, my mate sitting in the lectures next to me and just, you know, almost welling up. <laughs> and, and I remember him thinking, he's, oh, Jim, you're such a geek. <laughs> so, yeah. So in that sense of that transcendent, you know, sort of feeling that there's some there's beauty in the math, there's a beauty in, in the, our ability to describe the natural world, I, I, I think that should not just be the preserve of physicists like me. I'd, I'd like to think that I can give a flavour of, of that, that beauty to, to, to almost anyone. And what about simplicity? I spend a lot of my time these days scratching my head, trying to understand quantum physics so I can communicate it clearly to our readers and listeners. And more often than not, it just gives me a headache. Should physics be simple, or, or let me put it another way, d- does it need to be elegant? Um, an, a number of of very famous physicists have appealed to elegance and beauty and simplicity as as a way to uncovering the laws of nature. You know that if they come up with a theory, if it's if it's clunky, if it's not elegant, if it's complicated to to describe then it's probably wrong um that's not always true i mean there are aspects of the physical universe that are just messy that are just complicated um the the idea of simplicity i think we can sometimes push it too far I, i certainly remember when i first started communicating science you know 20 over 25 years ago um I truly believe that there wasn't anything I couldn't explain to a lay person uh, if I, you know, it, as long as I could find the right language without, you know, getting rid of the, the technical jargon. Um, and to some extent, that's that that that's true. It depends on how much information you want to get across. But I think recently I'm I'm well I'm reminded of a famous quote by the great Richard Feynman, American uh, physicist. Um, apparently, when he 
uh, won his Nobel Prize, a journalist asked him if he could encapsulate what he had uh, won his Nobel Prize for in a soundbite for the for the journalist. And and Feynman said, "I'm I'm I don't know the I can't remember the exact words. Certainly, I don't remember. I wasn't there at the time. But um, he said something along the lines of." If I could tell you what my Nobel Prize was for just in a few words, it wouldn't be worthy of a Nobel Prize. You know, so, you know, sometimes some of this stuff is hard. You know, that's why we don't all win Nobel Prizes. So not all of physics is simple. You can simplify things. You can give a basic outline of an idea. But if you want to dig into to really understanding it, yeah, it, it, it probably isn't that simple. OK, now on to some detail. Uh, this came quite high up on the uh, physics search ranking on uh, Google. The site uses Ahrefs, by the way, if anyone wants to ever look at what people are asking out there on Google. What is the standard model of physics? Ah, okay. Well, this is something I, I talk about in, in my book. Uh, in fact, we, we should be careful that if we're talking about standard model in physics, there are actually two standard models. There's the standard model of particle physics, which is basically an umbrella term encapsulating everything we know about the building blocks, the tiniest building blocks of, 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 of the universe, of matter and energy. And then there's the standard model of cosmology, which is the uh, everything we know uh, about the, the 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 entire universe, so that's like the standard model of the very large. The standard model of particles physics is the standard model of the very very small. Um, uh, the better known one, the one when we normally talk about the standard model, what we tend to mean is is the one of particle physics, and and that really uh, it, it's it's not a theory. Uh, it, in fact, technically, it's um, uh, a, a collection of everything we know about the building blocks of, 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 of the universe. Um, it's really two theories. Uh, both of them rely in turn on quantum mechanics, which, is, which are the rules that govern the behavior of the microscopic world. But quantum mechanics was developed, you know, almost a century ago. And throughout the 20th century, it had advanced and developed and become ever more elaborate and actually ever more, more accurate to the point that by the time we reached the standard model of particle physics, the latter half of the 20th century, latter stages of the 20th century, that standard model actually encapsulated two theories. One's called the electroweak theory, which describes two of the four forces of nature, electromagnetism and the weak nuclear force. And the other theory is called quantum chromodynamics, which describes uh, the third of the four forces of nature, the strong nuclear force. So three of the four forces of nature electromagnetism, the weak force, and the strong force are all um, described within this umbrella term, the standard model. The, the, the fourth one, the one, the odd one out, is the force of gravity, which is described by relativity theory, and that doesn't fit in. So the standard model of physics describes all the forces of nature, all phenomena, apart from gravity, which, which is it's quite a big missing chunk. Okay, so... So would I be accurate in saying that the model and those forces describe the way the building blocks that make everything up interact with each other? Exactly. Yeah, that, that's right. So the, the standard model uh, d d gives a classification of the particles of matter and, 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 and the forces between them. So uh, it, 
the, you know, how they fit together to how to make atoms, which then go to make molecules, which end up making all the stuff you know we see we see around us. So it's basically the 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 building blocks at the most basic fundamental level and how those building blocks fit together. So you might think the building blocks of matter is that's chemistry. This is digging down far deeper than than chemistry. It's, it's looking inside atoms of the particles that make up atoms. So given that there are a handful of these building blocks, these um, core components, how do you end up with so much complexity, uh, so much richness in the universe that we see and feel? Yeah, that 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 is incredible. I mean, when you think back to the ancient Greeks, they believed that, uh, in fact, all ancient um, uh, civilizations and scholars in antiquity believed that there were only four elements, earth, water, air and fire, and that everything derived from them. And then gradually, as, you know, chemistry evolves in the scientific revolution, and we discover all these different elements, we say, oh, how, how silly those Greeks were to think there's only four elements, you know, we've got, you know, now, by the time we discovered you know, the 92 natural elements of the famous periodic table, uh, well, that's 92 um, different types of atoms, and, and then they can fit together in almost an infinite number of ways to make all sorts of molecules the way they bond together. That's why, as you say, you look around and you see, you know, a solid table, um, uh, soft your your your, your skin, uh, the, the paper pages of a book, your concrete of the walls, all the different materials and stuff, and then the air that you breathe. But we sort of chemistry explains to us how all those materials can be so varied. But of course, with the development of particle physics and digging down within those atoms of the different elements, we actually revert back to this basic simplicity. In the end, when you think about it, uh, when, or when <laughs> we physicists have thought about it and, and, and carried out experiments, there are really everything that we see around us is only made of three, not four, but three types of particles. Two types of quarks and electrons. So you've got the up quark, the down quark, not very imaginative names, but the up quark and the down quark, they make up the particles, the protons and neutrons, that make up the nucleus of an atom. Right? So you've got up and down, ultimately up and down quarks are the matter particles that make up the nucleus, then buzzing around the nucleus are the electrons. Those three particles alone make up all atoms and its combinations, how many of them, uh, per atom and how they're arranged and how they fit together that gives us ultimately the variety of the different atoms and the different chemical properties they have and ultimately the whole of the whole of the stuff that we see around us so it is quite incredible from such a small number of ingredients we can get such infinite variety and then i just i just want to touch on you know the, the way physics works i suppose how, how did we arrive at this model i mean I suppose that's a very big question, but let's just say focusing on the idea of the Higgs for a moment. Scientists theorised its existence, you know, and then 30, 40 years later, we build particle accelerators that can search for it. And we end up with the crowning achievement of CERN, which was the confirmation of the existence of the Higgs boson. Can you tell me, or, or can we talk about how physicists move between that? You know, they move between theory and experimentation. Yes, I, mean, I think the the uh, the story of the Higgs boson, of course, it's it's well told now that Peter Higgs and and others were developing the theory, the mathematics, the the, the models to predict the existence of this particle over half a century ago. You know, it took fifty odd years to confirm the existence of this particle in in an experimental lab in, at, at the Large Hadron Collider. That hasn't always been the way 
uh, we have progressed in in trying to understand the ingredients of matter. Um, in fact, the reality is that theory and experiment have always worked in parallel. So um, to give you the opposite example, um, back at the beginning of the 20th century, Ernest Rutherford was trying to understand what atoms were made of and, 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 and their structure. And so famously, his two assistants, Geiger and Marsden, there's this famous experiment for if people remember from the school days, um, the uh, firing you know, alpha particles. You didn't actually do the experiment in, in, at schools, I'm pretty sure. Um, firing, or maybe, maybe people did, you know, firing alpha particles at gold leaf. Uh, and there's the famous, uh, uh, this experiment carried out in 1909 by Geiger and Marsden. Um, so this gold leaf was very, very thin. So only was not that many atoms thick. And these alpha particles, subatomic particles that fired from radioactive material, some of most of them would pass straight through the gold leaf without being deflected, but one in several thousand would bounce back again. Uh, so they were doing an experiment which was essentially the precursor of the Large Hadron Collider, firing matter at matter and seeing what happens and, and, and seeing the result of that. Um, there, the experiment was done first, and it took almost two years for Ernest Rutherford to develop the theory to figure out what that experimental result meant. And his theory was that what we now call the solar system model of the atom, the cartoon picture of the atom with the nucleus and electrons orbiting around it like a miniature solar system. We now know that isn't the, the correct picture of an atom because quantum mechanics tells us it's all fuzzy and cloudy and probabilities and whatnots. Um, but essentially, there was a theory that had to be developed after the experiment was carried out in order to interpret and understand the results of the experiment. And throughout the 20th century, they have run in tandem. When people developed the, the first, first atom smashers, particle accelerators, they, were also, they also were developing the, the theories to, to try and describe what they were seeing or to predict what they would see if they if they did a particular experiment. And gradually these these things were, and as I say, culminated in, in the Higgs boson, the Large Hadron Collider, uh, uh, you know, was, was built not just to find the Higgs, but that's what it's discovered so far. And I think particle physicists are somewhat, a little bit frustrated. They will never admit to it, but they're a little bit frustrated they haven't found other new particles just as sexy as the Higgs. But, uh, you know, who knows? And then, you know, we heard about the Higgs, uh, what was it, nearly, nearly, you know, five, ten years ago now. What's been happening at CERN since for anyone that hasn't been following uh, the research coming out of the facility? Well, um, there, there were some recent uh, results announced, but really they were, they were uh, discovering new, is it not exactly new particles, but sort of new uh, high energy sort of excited states or combinations of quarks. Um, they were hoping that they would f see evidence uh, of new types of particles. For example, uh, theoretical physicists are very keen on a, a mathematical idea called supersymmetry, uh, which is very powerful, uh, actually useful in developing sort of new theories of, of everything, um, like um, string theory. Uh, the suggestion that everything isn't actually made of particles, but made of tiny vibrating strings. So this idea of supersymmetry may or may not be true. It's very mathematical. But if it is true, the prediction is that there should be new types of particles that are called supersymmetric particles that the Large Hadron Collider would be able to create out of the energy of, of, of collisions, of very high energy collisions. 
but it hasn't found supersymmetric particles. It was hoping to find, uh, you know, other hypothesized theoretical, uh, theoretically postulated particles. It hasn't seen anything uh, uh, new yet. Uh, so, at the moment, it's it's in downtime. Um, so, but there's there's tons and tons and tons of data that still has to be analysed. You know, you don't do the experiment and immediately you see something and, and you say, oh, we've just found a new particle. It takes months of analysis and number crunching with very powerful computers to work through the the, the, the whole the mess of all the stuff that is created in these collisions. So it may be that in sifting through the data, we'll we'll see something new. Uh, but as yet, you know, we're, we're coming up to, it was eight years now since the Higgs. Uh, I, the Light Home Collider hasn't finished its work, that's for sure. But no one knows what, what new surprises it might throw up. You used the word there that I wanted to come to next, actually. Uh, well, you said, you said supersymmetry. But on Google, a lot of people are trying to understand symmetry in physics, it seems. Can you explain to me, within physics, what is symmetry and why is it important to physicists? Yes, well, I mean, in, in more general language, when we say something is symmetrical, uh, we mean it's, you know, it has a balanced pattern, like, you know, flip it left and right through a mirror. You know, if your face is symmetrical, it looks the same if you switch the left and right around. We talk about geometric objects as being, you know, a square has symmetry because if you rotate it by 90 degrees, it doesn't change. It's still a square. If you... Uh, chop it in half and swap the halves over, it doesn't change. So it has this uh, a certain kind of symmetry. A circle has even more symmetry because you can rotate it by any angle and it doesn't change. So, so in physics, we mean something actually even deeper than that. Uh, we say it's not just the fact that certain shapes don't change if you flip them or rotate them. We mean a physical system. When we say a physical system has symmetry, it means that there's some property of that system that doesn't change, that stays the same when something else is altered. So by ch if you change something uh, about a, by a system, I mean, you know, it could be a, a particle, it, it could be, a, you know, an equation, <laughs> any, anything in physics. If you change one aspect of it and another aspect doesn't change, we say that's a symmetry of, of, of the system. And it's a very, it's quite an abstract mathematical idea, but it's turned out to be extremely powerful in physics. Okay. And another concept that you talk about in your book, and it's one that's fairly well searched for on Google, is the idea of universality. Can you tell me what that is and why it's important? Well, um, physicists, when they talk about universality, some physicists actually mean something rather technical, but so I won't, I won't go into that. But in general, what we mean by universality is that there are laws of physics that apply across a wide range of phenomena, phenomena that we maybe didn't think were connected. Um, and a really nice example of this is one of the earliest examples in, in, in our long journey of unifying the laws of physics. Uh, and that's um, Isaac Newton um, dis discovering the law of, of, of gravity. Um, you know, whether or not the, the, the apple actually fell from the apple tree when he was sitting on his mother's farm back in the uh, 17th century. We don't know that's apocryphal. It's, I think Newton himself tells that story. But essentially, the, the, what he realised was this profound universality of gravity, that this invisible force that pulls the atom to the ground is exactly the same force that keeps the moon in orbit around the Earth. 
and the Earth in orbit around the sun. Now, that's not obvious. <laughs> Why would that be obvious to anyone when you talk about things that fall to the ground because they have a tendency to, to want to move towards the Earth? And then you've got some other laws of the universe governing the heavenly bodies and the orbits of, of the planets and, and the moon. Why should that they be the same thing? Well, Newton realized it's this the inverse square law, the for, you know the, the the force of gravity involving the masses of objects and the square of the distance between them, which we learn at school. That law applies equally well to apples as it does to moons and planets. So there's a universality there of that particular law of nature. So uh, for me, you know, in a general sense, that's what physics does this um, um, incredibly. Physics has these universal laws describing phenomena across a huge range of time and, and distance that no other science can compete with in, in terms of scope. Uh, but um, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm biased towards yeah. physics. <laughs> you're, just, you're just bragging now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that brings me on to my final question for this episode. So from my perspective, and that's someone who uh, didn't necessarily study physics at university, um, the laws of physics seem to operate two levels. You have the world of the big and the world of the very small, uh, which we call the quantum world. Now, is there a discrete point where the rules switch from one to the other? Is, is there a size at which we say, okay, now the, the laws that govern this world um they they're the ones of the quantum world well it it it's certainly true that thus far we haven't been able to use both at the same time and that's that's the holy grail of physics to unify the description of the quantum world with the the, the description of the classical the, the 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 large the macroscopic world whether it's at the scale of us humans or whether it's the scale of galaxies and the whole universe um uh, and you might think, well, why? You know, they're, they're, they're two very different domains. Why would you want one theory to describe two very different things? Um, but of course, there are examples uh, or phenomena in, in in the universe that you can only explain properly if you bring in quantum mechanics and the the, the classical laws, which we now would we would talk about in terms of Einstein's general theory of relativity. But but in terms of this, the boundary between you know what is our everyday world described by whether it's Einstein or whether it's just Newtonian mechanics, the classical physics, and the quantum world, the very small, which is uh, which is a very different description, a very different reality. That boundary is something we are still exploring now. I mean, it's 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 been a a, a, a tremendously uh, um, interesting area. What is the the, the transition between the quantum and the classical, where, where is that crossover? Um, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's, it's to do with something called the measurement problem that, you know, there's the famous Schrodinger's cat in the box. Uh, be, if you don't be, open the box, uh, it's all behaving quantum mechanically, dead, the cat's dead and alive at the same time. As soon as you open and look, it's either dead or alive. And you could say, well, that's, you know, I've carried out a measurement. I've, I've, I've made it stop behaving quantum mechanically and now it's behaving according to classical physics. But that that's a very sort of rough and ready way of explaining it. Actually, the, the, the boundary between the two uh, is, is, is a grey area. You know, you, in my research in nuclear physics, um, very often to do the whole, and an atomic nucleus, everything's quantum mechanical there, uh, but to, to do a calculation 
in order just to be able to to get a result, using quantum mechanics might be too difficult. So what you do is relax it a bit and say, well, what if it was half classical? What if I could use a, 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 a simplifying idea and approximation and do what's called a semi-classical calculation? You try and cheat it. But that's still a cheat because we still don't understand this transition between the quantum and classical. And it leads to a whole new era, which I'm interested in at the moment, called open quantum systems, where your quantum weirdness, you know, the particles being in two places at once, that sort of thing, how it interacts with its surroundings and its surroundings are us, everyday objects. So what is that connection between the two? It's, it's still, it's still, I'm, what I'm, I'm waffling on a lot to, to basically say it's still a mystery that we're still working on. <laughs> and that's actually um, what one of your research interests is in, isn't it? Um, uh, quantum biology, uh, which is how quantum effects might play out in our biology. Well, it's, it's, it's the fact that um, we, we are discovering uh, potentially quantum effects happening inside living cells. So it's not um, the fact that uh, quantum mechanics is suddenly now in the everyday world, but you know it, it governs the behavior of atoms and molecules. And if those atoms and molecules are, are inside living cells, there are certain things that seem to be going on in biological systems that require quantum mechanics. So that has been my motivation for the last decade or more of my research. But essentially what I'm really interested in is this idea of how does the quantum world interact with its classical surroundings? What, you know, things called, you know, the, the very sort of esoteric things like quantum entanglement, quantum decoherence. I love it because it's, it's very mathematical and it's, it's like, it's like puzzle solving for me. So, so anything that, that means, cause I don't, I don't write computer codes like I used to back in the day. So I like scribbling equations on, on pieces of paper or on my iPad these days because I've got a very flash iPad Pro now with, a, with an eye pencil. So I write my equations on a screen, which is, which is fun. We're going to wrap it up there for today. In the next episode, which will be out tomorrow, Jim and I are going to talk about the big stuff. And by big, I mean the really big concepts. Space and time, the universal speed limit, the Big Bang, and of course, how it all ends. So if you've enjoyed this episode and be tuning into the next one, please do subscribe. And if you can spare a minute, leave a review and let us know what subjects you want us to tackle next. And of course, if you want more primers on the big ideas in science from the Science Focus team, head over to our website, sciencefocus.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And if you want to dive deeper into any of the topics covered, then Professor Jim Al-Khalili's new book, The World According to Physics, published by Princeton University Press, is the perfect place to start. It's a concise introduction to the most important ideas in physics now, and Jim is a wonderfully clear writer who takes the grandest of ideas and makes them simple to understand. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. This podcast has been created by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. If you've enjoyed listening, why not try out our magazine? In the next few issues, we've got a special report coming up on the progress towards a coronavirus vaccine. We've got a piece by Steve Brusatte, one of the world's leading paleontologists, on the mammals that thrived among the dinosaurs. And we'll be taking a deep dive into the space mission that will fly a helicopter on Mars. So if you don't want to miss out, we've got a couple of special offers for you. 
First off, if you're used to buying your magazines from the shops, you can get your next three issues delivered to your home without needing to set up a direct debit. And you'll still save on the shop price. Or if you're happy to set up a direct debit, we can offer you even more savings. And your first six issues will be just $9.99. Pick up what works for you by visiting www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash science focus spring podcast offer. That's www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash science focus spring podcast offer.